Welcome to SLP Money, an in-depth conversation for speech, language pathologists, and private practice owners on how to break through to the next level of your career and business. Join your host, Craig Goldslager, a financial advisor and certified exit planner, as he shares strategies and stories that will help you become more financially confident and better invest your time and money. You can learn more and stay up to date at utterlyfinancial.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of SLP Money, where today's conversation will be sort of a continuation of our last episode. So if you didn't have a chance to listen to the previous episode, episode 17, about the conversation, whether or not you should grow your private practice by acquiring another business, I suggest you pause this recording, go back and listen to the previous episode. Whereas if you've already decided that you'd like to grow your private practice by acquiring another business and or have already reached the conclusion that you'd like to sell your private practice for whatever purpose, this episode is for you. So what we're going to be discussing is the five-step process to transact either on the buyer side or the seller side. The five steps are the same, but depending on which side of the deal you are on, either purchasing a business or selling your business, there might be some variance as to whether you provide certain types of documents or financial statements. But we'll explain both sides of the deal so it'll benefit you, whether you're on the, again, purchasing side or selling side. Also, a quick note. My assumption as I go through this episode is that you have decided to either purchase or sell the business. If you have not given this any consideration or this is something, a topic you have maybe never heard of before, I do suggest that you go back and listen to the very first episode of this podcast titled Leaving Your Business is Inevitable, in which I outline more of the qualitative decision-making that goes into the process of whether it is time to sell your business or not. I do talk at length about the fact that leaving your business is inevitable. Myself, as a business owner, I will leave my business at some point. So there is some planning that goes into this. You may decide that you don't want to sell your business for years or even decades, but there is some fundamental planning that should be instilled and put into place. The most important part of that episode is that there are three universal truths that every business owner must answer prior to exiting her business. The first is who will you sell the business to? So that can either be an insider or a third party. When you want to sell the business, some SLPs we meet are burnt out and want to get out of their private practice as soon as possible. Others are willing to have an extended timeline, five years, 10 years plus. And then the third, which we'll spend most of the conversation today talking about is how much do you need to sell your business for? Said another way, how much is your business worth? And so as we get into talking about the five-step process for the actual transaction, again, either on the buyer side or the seller side, if you do need to go back and listen to the first episode, I would encourage you to do that. It might provide some context as I dive deeper into the process and talk about these next steps. So let's say you've decided to sell your private practice or purchase another private practice as part of your growth plan for your business. To help make this conversation a little bit smoother, I'm going to pretend that I am the buyer in this situation and I'm looking to purchase your private practice. If that's the case, I'll share with you what I would be looking for as a prospective buyer of your private practice. And so the first of the five steps is to have a non-disclosure agreement, confidentiality agreement, and the other exclusivity agreements signed. What this will do is it will help protect both parties and prevent any nefarious 
or dubious activities and help protect you in the event that I might have some unscrupulous thoughts from entering into these conversations. For instance, many of the private practitioners we meet have proprietary systems. Yes, you may use an EHR or other types of software, but you might have developed a process or procedure, something that is exclusive, a trade secret for your business. If that's the case, by signing a confidentiality agreement or a non-disclosure, it helps protect you from me stealing or infringing upon anything you may have created. It also will prevent me from speaking to the media, other resources, other information that might spill the beans that we are talking about a potential acquisition or purchase process. So a non-disclosure agreement and confidentiality agreement is a really important thing to help set the framework that both parties are ready to enter into serious conversation and begin talking about the sale process. The second part of the process is having a letter of intent drafted and executed by both me, the purchaser, and you, the seller of your business. And what the letter of intent does is it specifies a few really important milestones for a conversation. One, it will give me, the buyer, exclusivity to negotiate and speak with you directly about purchasing your business. It's the next step in the process. It shows that I'm a serious buyer. It shows that you are serious about selling your business. And it gives me the right to negotiate and speak with you for an exclusive period of time. Most commonly, that's 30 days, maybe as far as 60 days, but it does give me the right to negotiate and act in good faith with you, and you can no longer either list your business if you've listed it with a business broker, or if you're fielding other offers from other clinicians or other third parties, it gives me the right to deal solely with you. Also, in the letter of intent, it will specify the purchase terms and what you are looking for as the seller of the business. The valuation, terms of the deal, are you looking for a cash payment up front? What type of term length? How will the deal be financed? Are you willing to carry a seller's note? Are you expecting me to procure my own financing from a lender to secure the deal? So all of that gets ironed out in the letter of intent, but the most important part is that it opens up my window to conduct my due diligence. Any professional buyer of your business is going to want to conduct due diligence for many reasons. The first will be to validate the actual valuation of your business and help me determine whether or not the valuation you've listed in your letter of intent is valid. The second is I will review and look at several financial statements and documents to make sure that they are one, accurate, and two, a true portrayal of your company's financial health. Because it's one thing for you to tell me that you are grossing a certain number of revenue, but I need to validate that through my due diligence. The third reason of the due diligence phase is to make sure that there are no unexpected risks or liabilities or other surprises that haven't been spelled out to me in the letter of intent. Perhaps you have lines of credit with balances that you've drawn against that you did not disclose to me there might be other liabilities that you owe, or perhaps there's a lawsuit or potential litigation for either you or someone within your practice. This will give me the time to research all of that and see what's really going on within your business. And then the fourth thing that I'll be looking for when I conduct my due diligence is to assess the true long-term business prospects, the potential, and the sustainability of all of the metrics that you've shared with me, your growth rates, your projections, your profits. Make sure that all of this makes sense and that what I'm purchasing is a business that is either growing or 
substantiating the claims in which you are making. So let's break these down a little bit further to give a more context as to what I'll be looking for as a buyer. So the first two reasons to do the due diligence to validate the valuation in which you've listed, as well as check the financial statements for accuracy, those are pretty correlated. And so I'll talk about them at the same time, because in order for me to determine a valuation of your business, I need to look at your financial statements. There are four financial statements that I will want to analyze and go deep to figure out my own calculations on how I will determine the valuation of your business. The first is your balance sheet. So the balance sheet serves as the snapshot in time of your practice where I can quickly see the assets that you have, whether it's cash in the bank, accounts receivables from perhaps insurance billing that you're waiting to receive, equipment you might own, land, perhaps you own the building or the practice and the clinic in which you operate. So all those are listed on the asset side of the balance sheet. You also have your liabilities. Perhaps you have outstanding credit cards or debt or you took out lines of credit to finance some of the equipment or materials you use to operate your business. So that gives me a snapshot in time and it's a representation of what the business owns from an assets and liabilities perspective. The second financial statement that I'll be looking for is your income statement, also known as your profit and loss statement. And I would argue that this is the most important one of the four that I'll be talking about today because this will show me how you are truly operating your business. So within the income statement, you have your top line income or your revenues generated. Then you have all of your expenses. And when you subtract all of your expenses from your revenues, you are left with your pre-tax income. So those are two really critical numbers that I will be looking for in analyzing within your income statements. The top line or gross revenue, all the receipts that your company brings in, as well as your pre-tax income. So I get a pretty good idea of what's going on within the business at that point, but there are a couple of critical things that I will be looking for as the prospective buyer that go deeper than just the pre-tax income. Because oftentimes I'll be approached by SLPs or private practice owners who tell me, I've heard some rules of thumb in the industry that I can get two times my gross revenue for the sale of my business or 0.5 times the pre-tax income. And while there are, are hints of truth, in rules of thumb, it's important to state that every private practice runs a little differently. And you also have to know what to look for in these income statements and other financial statements to go deeper to actually see what a true valuation is for the business and what what it can be purchased for. So for instance, there's a really important term in the valuation process known as seller's discretionary earnings or SD as in dog E as an acronym, so SDE. And what seller's discretionary earnings will provide me, the purchaser, is it will show me what discretionary income is available by purchasing your business. So I've already talked about pre-tax income. That's an important component of seller's discretionary earnings. There are some other really critical factors that get added to pre-tax income to help determine this number for seller's discretionary earnings. One of those numbers is officer compensation. So as a private practice owner, regardless of how you file as a tax entity, your private practice generates a certain amount of compensation for you. You could be taking that as salary. You could be taking it as an ownership distribution or an annual dividend. Whatever that number is gets added to your pre-tax income to help build the valuation. Because one of the things that I'll be looking for as the buyer of your business is what can I do with these discretionary earnings? I can take them as a salary, which is what you might be doing right now. 
I could choose to reinvest it back into the business. I could choose to save it towards retirement. I could use it to hire more therapists or maybe an office manager. It's completely discretionary, also known as the free cash flow of the business. By knowing what that number is, it allows me to make a lot more decisions about the trajectory or future growth of the business. In addition to pre-tax income and officer compensation, I'll also be looking at something called addbacks. So addbacks, again, fall into this discretionary earnings category where you might be attending annual conferences for personal development. That's totally discretionary. Most people would agree that you should be attending conferences and performing some type of personal development throughout the year. But at the same time, I might say, you know what? I don't need to spend $10,000 to attend these three different annual conferences. I might just attend one. So if that one conference costs me $4,000 and you're spending $10,000, all of a sudden I now have $6,000 of discretionary earnings that I can add back. That's where the name comes from, right? I can add back that $6,000 into my seller's discretionary earnings. Once you find other addbacks, sometimes private practice owners expense their cars through the business or other materials or other things that may or may not be important to me, the purchaser of your business. So once I come up with that total number of seller discretionary earnings, I have that number. And then based on some other factors, I'm able to apply a multiplier to that number. So if I add together your pre-tax income, your officer compensation, and all of the addbacks, and it comes out to $150,000, and then based on some other factors that I'll talk about next, let's say I add a multiplier of three, I would place a valuation on your practice of $450,000. So you might be wondering, how do you determine a multiplier or how do I come up with three in the previous example? Well, that comes back to the third and fourth things that I talked about, what I'll be looking for when I conduct my due diligence. So when I go through my due diligence process and I look for unexpected risks or liabilities or future costs to your business, there are some other metrics that I'll be looking for as well to look at the, as I mentioned earlier, the true long-term business prospects and the operations of your business. So what might some of these be? Projected revenue growth is really important for me if I'm going to buy your business. If you've been a private practitioner for 10 years and I've seen a projected annualized growth rate of 10% per year, that's pretty attractive to me. I see that you've been growing steadily, top line revenue, things are looking great. Whereas the opposite could be true. You might've had an amazing year in 2019 and then 2020 because of COVID-19 perhaps or some other external reasons, your practice had a 50% reduction in revenues. What a buyer is going to be looking for are justifications and explanations for any variability within these revenue numbers. So revenue growth is a really important driver. Another important one is another acronym for you, EBITDA margin. So EBITDA is comparable to SDE, seller's discretionary earnings. And what EBITDA stands for is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. As a speech language pathologist and private practice owner, this is, I would say SDE is more important than EBITDA, mostly because a lot of the practitioners we meet don't have a lot of expenses for interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, right? A lot of the work you do is in the major expenses that you sustain as a business owner are labor expenses because it's such a labor intensive business. But you might be depreciating some equipment like computers or scopes or other assets to the business. And if that's the case, what EBITDA margin measures is simply your pre-tax income divided by 
your gross revenue. So you're extrapolating out interest, taxes, depreciation, things that you receive tax benefits for. And by taking all of that out, I come up with a percentage. So if my pre-tax income was $100,000 and my gross revenue was a million dollars, my margin is 10%. So what does that mean? Well, what that does is it gives me some context to determine how your business is operating compared to another private practice. Perhaps you're not the only private practice I'm looking to purchase. So if you're operating at 10%, there might be another clinician down the street who does $2 million of revenue, but has a $20,000 net profit or pre-tax income. So 20,000 divided by 2 million is a 1% margin. Now, depending on what I'm looking for when I purchase the business, if I'm looking to acquire a business that has as much revenue as possible, I would prefer the clinician down the street, right? Because she's grossing $2 million compared to your $1 million. However, if I'm looking for a practice that's lean and operating much more efficiently, I would prefer your practice because it's operating at a 10% margin as opposed to a 1% margin. Margins are important. Growth rates are important. Another factor that I'll be looking for in your growth rates is what percent of your business is recurring annual revenue? Are a lot of your new clients coming from referral sources? Are they coming from insurance companies or school contracts or other types of vendors? Or are you having to source all of your new business annually? So is it hard to know how much inflow and revenues you'll have year to year? The more consistent and more recurring revenue you have, the more attractive of a candidate you are to me. Once I've conducted my due diligence, that's when I might propose a counter offer to whatever is listed in the letter of intent. Perhaps you listed your business for $600,000. And remember in the example, I said that your business is worth $450,000, right? $150,000 for seller's discretionary earnings times a multiplier of three gives me 450. So I might tell you, you know what? I will purchase your business for $450,000. And then just like most people have purchased a home at some point in their life or bought a car and gone to the car dealership. Anytime you're purchasing an asset, there is a phase of negotiation and conversation about what it will take to help make the deal get done. So I propose $450,000. You might be firm on 600. Most likely a deal won't happen. But the key part about this is that this due diligence phase gives again that exclusivity for you and I to talk and try and figure out terms that will make it palatable for both of us. So let's say we get closer on terms and this deal is headed towards a successful close that I will purchase your private practice from you. So the next step, step three, after I conduct my due diligence is to have an actual purchase agreement drafted, which outlines the specific deals as it will occur and what will transpire. For instance, if you wanted $600,000 for your business and I offer $450,000, I might offer you $550,000 if I can have extended payment terms and pay that balance off to you over a 10-year period. You might want cash up front or you might want more money up front so then you can counter back. So a counter to my proposal would be you might say, you know what? I'll sell my business for $475,000 if you pay me 100% in cash and pay it up front. So you've come down off of your number off of $600,000. I've come up for my number of $450,000. But sometimes business owners want cash. They don't want to have to have what's called an earn out or earn the money over a five or 10 year period of time. They just want to be done with the practice and sell it. Other times you might negotiate a down payment. So you could put If the sale price is $500,000, you might want 20% upfront, which would be a check for $100,000. And then the remaining $400,000 could be paid a few different ways. 
It could be paid in installment payments. So if I owe a balance of $400,000 over a five-year period, I'll write you checks for $80,000 annually over a five-year period. It could also be done where you might tell me I need to secure a note or a loan and pay off the balance up front. So if that's the case, I might have to go to a bank to secure the note. Remember we talked in the last episode about being a prepared buyer. I would have financing ready in my case because that might be something in which I close the deal with. Or I might ask you to take responsibility and be the owner. And what we call that is a seller's note where as the seller of the business, sometimes the seller takes on the role and responsibility of the bank and finances the note herself. But the important part is, is that a purchase agreement is put together. It's drafted by an attorney and sets the parameters on which how I will purchase the business for you. Steps four and five are continuation of the purchase agreement. Step four is the actual payment to you for your business. So that could be based on the parameters and the terms in which we talked about a down payment, the full balance, maybe no down payment, just an earnout over a several year period of time. And then the fifth is actual transfer of ownership. So sometimes what happens is the seller doesn't want to give up control of the business because if I'm a buyer and I, let's say the agreed upon sale price between you and I is $500,000 and I put a down payment down for $100,000, but I want 100% ownership of the business. I want to run the business because I'm buying it from you. Well, it's a pretty risky strategy for the seller to take only $100,000 of the $500,000. There'd still be $400,000 owed to you, but there's a lot of potential risk in this scenario because what if I take over the business and run it into the ground? and it's no longer successful, it's no longer generating profits, and I close the doors 12 months from now, there's no money to pay you. The note might default, in which case you wouldn't receive the money if you took out a seller's note if you wanted to finance the deal yourself. So you might give strong consideration to having the buyer or the purchaser secure a note from a bank. The reason why seller notes come into play sometimes is if you're selling your practice, so if I'm the buyer and I'm your lead therapist, I may not have enough money to go to a bank or collateral and secure a note from the bank. The only way for the deal to close might be for you, the seller, to finance a deal for me because I don't have the assets to, again, go to a bank and collateralize a loan or to write you a check for what you're looking for. So all of this gets ironed out. All of this discussion occurs during the process of figuring out what makes someone a suitable buyer for your practice. So as I begin to wrap up this episode, longtime listeners of the SLP Money Podcast know I like to leave you all with three action items to implement right away in case there is a prospective buyer looking to purchase your business, you're looking to sell your business and might want to engage with someone who might be a prospective buyer. So here are the three things that I would recommend doing. The first, conduct a due diligence review on your own business. So do you have readily accessible financial documents, those Statements we talked about, your balance sheet, your profit and loss statement, your statement of cash flows, and your tax returns. Do you have those readily available and ready to send to a prospective buyer? The number one reason why deals don't close is because of a lack of urgency and a lack of deadlines and timelines. So if someone's interested, you should be prepared to get them information very quickly. So by doing your own due diligence, analyzing your own financials, making sure your operating agreements are in order, you have an appropriate census or a recent census. Everything in which you're running your business, your playbook, if you will, you should be able to access that electronically very quickly and get that information to someone within the span of a few days. The second action item 
I would consider doing is reviewing the methodology you use for determining the valuation of your practice. A lot of clinicians will use rules of thumb, and we believe that there should be more intentionality to justify valuations and purchase prices. So I spent some time talking about seller's discretionary earnings, again, looking at the pre-tax income of your private practice, figuring out what you take as discretionary earnings or compensation or dividends or distributions from the business, as well as figuring out other discretionary earnings or addbacks, things that are non-essential to the business that you might be taking as an ownership perk, putting that all together, coming up with a number for your seller's discretionary earnings, and then figuring out a fair and reasonable multiplier to add to that number. And then the third is be prepared to know what your best and final number is if you get to the stage of conversation with a prospective buyer. So again, in the example I talked about, I had valued your business to be worth $450,000. You told me it was $600,000. That's not an insurmountable gap, but there might be some number that you need in order to finance your retirement or start a second business. Whatever you're planning to use the sale proceeds for, maybe that number is $500,000. And if we can't meet there, you have to be willing to walk away from the deal because You've already calculated that $500,000 is the minimum number that you're willing to accept. If you can take $450,000, then most likely a deal will occur because I've come to the table with that number in mind. But if there is some number, and again, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the very first episode of this podcast, Leaving Your Business is Inevitable, because we outline the importance of figuring out financial independence and what the sale price of your business means to retirement income or generating the next stage of your life after you leave the business. So figure out what number is most important to you. As always, I thank you so much for listening to this episode. And if you do have any questions about anything we discussed in this episode, feel free to contact us. Head on over to our website, utterlyfinancial.com, where you can learn more in our learning center about what it is we do with SLPs and private practitioners around the country to help them manage their cash flow and improve their financial lives. So until next time, thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to SLP Money, hosted by Craig Goldslager. Want even more ideas on how to make smart financial decisions? Head on over to the Learning Center at utterlyfinancial.com, where you'll find more information for SLPs and private practice owners. While there, you can also schedule a complimentary 30-minute consultation with Craig. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, which will help more people discover SLP money. Thanks so much for listening. Materials discussed is for general and informational purposes only and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investing advice. While the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations may vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual and professional advice. Craig Goldslager is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 2 South Biscayne Boulevard, Suite 1740, Miami, Florida, 33131, 305-371-6333. Securities, products, and financial services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC, Financial Representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Utterly Financial is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Craig Goldsliger does not maintain specialized licenses or qualifications for the financial services provided to speech language pathologists and private practice professionals. 
California insurance license 0K78754. 2020 10 expiration 04 2023.